Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan right here. As always, you can find out everything that you need at warroommedia.com. Support the show. Free newsletter. It's all there. Let's get into the show today, though. Dr. Robert 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 Plowman, who is a who is the MRC research professor in behavioral genetics at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London. He's got numerous papers, books, talks, all kinds of stuff. We'll link to his full bio at warroommedia.com. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Plowman to the War Room. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Okay. Very good of you to join us today. Um, behavioral genetics. Okay. Let's just unpack that term. What does that actually mean when we say that? Yeah, it's a great place to start. Well, people know what you mean when you say like medical genetics. You're talking about genetic influences, say, on heart disease or cancer or any of the other things. So behavioral genetics is the genetic study of behavioral traits, which is essentially psychology and psychiatry, mental health and illness, personality, cognitive abilities, educational achievement. So it's really just the genetics of behavior. And how far back does this brand of genetic study go? Yeah. Well, like most things, you know, they always say it has a long history, but a short scientific past. You know, everything goes back to Aristotle, doesn't it? But, um, you know, people have talked about things running in families for a very long time. And um, for since humans have um, been civilized, that has gone to agricultural and animal husbandry, they're aware that things that they can breed for things, for plants and for animals. And it's really interesting with animals, you know, like with the oldest human communities, there are dogs. And dogs are bred really as much for behavior as they are for uh, bodies. That is, you know, you want a, a big dog if you want a guard dog, but you, want, you don't want a guard dog that kills people unless you want them to, you know. And so you're actually breeding for behavior um, in cattle and in all animals, really, because, you know, you need a certain docility, for example. You don't want aggressive cows that go stomping on you, that sort of thing. So thousands of years, really, people have known things run in families. And um, in, in the olden times, people realized that there must be something genetic going on because, you know, you can, you can take um, dogs that point and, you know, they've sort of been bred for pointing and hunting and they just do it naturally. You, you don't have to do much to get them to do it. But take a dog that's been trained like a shepherd and try to get them to do the hunting and it just doesn't work. So I think in the past, people recognized that there's something like genetics, even though we didn't know what genetics was until 50 years ago. We didn't know what the mechanism was. So... Um, the short scientific history, though, I'm just writing something on 100 years of behavioral genetic research. The first um, like twin and adoption studies of humans that compare identical and non-identical twins and adoption studies, uh, they began in the 1920s. And um, at that time, people were quite willing to accept the possibility of genetic influence. But then um, along, something in psychology called behaviorism the idea that um, we don't want to do any introspection. We only want to look at observable behavior. And that led to what we call environmentalism, the view that we are what we learn, you know, that 
that's all that matters is, you know, if, if uh, like a lot of it was animal studies. And if you shock animals or something or teach them things, you can get them to do pretty much anything. And so they thought everything's environmental. And then in the 30s, of course, came Nazi Germany. And that was probably that was the end of uh, behavioral genetic research for about 50 years. But then it slowly came back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But when I was in graduate school in the 1970s in psychology, you still couldn't talk about genetics. You know, it was just uh, foreboding because everybody knew from Freud onwards that it's all environmental. You know, they even said, I remember a textbook when I was in graduate school that talked about schizophrenia. You know, most people probably know what schizophrenia is, severe thought mm -hmm. disorders that occur later in life. Mm -hmm. We were told in the book that it's caused by what your mother does to you in the first few years of life. They talked about mothers who are cold and rejecting. And, you know, that's so wicked because it's totally wrong. There's no evidence that early maternal treatment causes schizophrenia. In fact, we now know that it's very highly heritable, that is, influenced by genetic factors. So in the 50 years I've been in the field, there's been a remarkable transformation. You know, in the 70s, you couldn't talk about genetics, but now I think most if not all, reasonable scientists accept an important role for genetics in all behaviors. Mm, okay, so you, you touched on a lot of things I want to circle back yeah. there, but the first is unpack maybe you have the scientific community, but how do people, average folks like myself, respond to when you say these things? Because I can hear someone going, oh, yeah, for instance, I have a Jacoby now, which is a half Jack Russell, half Beagle, oh, yeah. and it's more of a hunting. We don't use it for hunting, but it's more of like a hunting type dog. We just had it. Our last dog was an English Bulldog, right? Two separate ends of the spectrum, you know, of how yep. they operate. And you can see how being bred is quite clear. And from an animal or, or for the cattle example you gave, everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. But then bringing this idea to humans, I'm sure, at least in popular culture, probably gets a lot of concern looks um so is this kind of talk that you would give to a normal normal folks are they like are they receptive to it are they hesitant um what's the general public's perception great, great question and you know it's interesting i find that people who have dogs they get it you know because the, you know it's amazing to think from a chihuahua to a great dane this is one species of dogs they would interbreed so it just goes to show you the diversity of genetics within a single species. So um, it, it's a great point that you make, because as I said, when I was in graduate school, you couldn't even talk about genetics. People were still um, in the shadow of Nazi Germany and eugenics and all of that. But um, eventually, so what I did, I kept my head down for 30 years in my research, and I just thought, yeah, collect the data you know, like twin studies and adoption studies that I think will, that eventually built a mountain of data that's really hard for people to deny. But then along in the 1990s, along came the DNA revolution, which I, I hope we'll talk about because that changed everything. You can argue with twin studies, you can argue with adoption studies, but you can't argue with DNA. When I say, here's a, little, here's a difference in DNA that you inherited from birth, and that predicts your behavior is really, it doesn't leave you much to argue about. So um, for 30 years, I kept my head down. But then a couple of years ago, I wrote my book, Blueprint, 
which um, I decided, you know, after 50 years, I'd just stick my head above the parapet and just tell it like I think it is. <laughs> and the, the subtitle of the book is How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And what that means is the major systematic force making us who we are in personality, mental health and illness, cognitive abilities, school performance, the major systematic force is inherited DNA differences. The environment's important, but it doesn't work the way psychologists thought it worked from Freud onwards. We could go into that. So that's the point of the book, how DNA makes us who we are as individuals. That is, we're focused on DNA differences and how they make us different. To, to, to what extent, say, um, is reading disability uh, genetic? Some kids learn to read easily. Some kids have a lot of trouble learning to read. To what extent do inherited DNA differences make a difference? Now, it's an important distinction because um, we're talking about why people differ and the extent to which DNA differences make them different. And what's important here is 99.9% .9 of our 3 billion base pairs of DNA, you know, in the double helix of DNA, each of those steps in the spiral staircase is called a nucleotide base. So we've got 3 billion of those in our, in our each uh, DNA chromosome that we inherit from our parents. And 99.99% of all those 3 billion bases are the same for all of us. That's what makes us human. But what we're interested in is the extent to which that 0.1% that differs makes us different. And 0.1% of 3 billion is several million. So there's a lot of DNA differences that can make us different. And what we found now with DNA studies is that those DNA differences are very important. In fact, they're the most important source of differences between people. Okay, so you mentioned the Nazis. One thing I'm curious, I've heard this before. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if you know if it's true or not. But I've heard in, in the U.S. during slavery, they would try to breed the slaves, force breed them to produce what they thought would be the strongest slave. Have Have you seen that? Are you familiar with any of that history? Is that this myth or any insight on that? Because I've heard that before, never studied it. But you brought the Nazis up, got me thinking, hmm, I've heard that before. Um, I'm curious if there's any truth to that. Yeah. Well, it's such a horrible thing to have to talk about, you know. Um, breeding is, you know, it, it's um, it's it's what eugenics is about, basically. That, right. um, you know, that is so unpalatable to people. And I'm sure there there was breeding because, I mean, docility, for example. I mean, if if you were a slave and you didn't want to put up with it you know, you wouldn't last very long, you know, and, and so there's an unintentional selection and we still select today. Evolution is working very hard today. Do you know what I mean? It's said that 70% oh. of all conceptions abort very early on. And, and those spontaneous abortions are genetic uh, differences that don't work, maybe a new mutation or something like that. Most new mutations aren't good because, you know, we've been honed by evolution for, um, you know, millennia. And so any new variant, any mutation is probably not going to be good. Sometimes they are, but often they're not. And that's what contributes 
to these very high spontaneous abortion rates. And that's selection, you know, in its most ruthless, ruthless form. But um, uh, breeding humans is something, you know, we don't even want to think about, really. Or I don't. No, it's not a... Well, <laughs> I'm not trying to make it in a, as a positive, of course. I'm just thinking um, in 2022, Nazi Germany is kind of like um, a, a, a point in history that we all kind of focus on. But I'm, I'm curious if this idea predates them far beyond. Because if you have the dog concept or if you have the cattle concept, and I mean, slaves were treated like that in the U.S., it's not a stretch to think that, that perhaps they were that, – that mentality – uh, was forced upon them, of course, which was, yeah, yeah. it's, um, um yeah, slavery not, 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 far again, back. Not, not, it goes way back in history, doesn't far it? Back, right. So, yeah. right. Right. So then it goes way back. So then you make, make, makes you wonder if these ideas were, were pushed back further into history. Um, so one thing though, I'm curious your thoughts on, you mentioned this DNA, the, the similarity versus the difference. Okay. If you've traveled the world and you know that cultural, those seem to have a lot of things in common, so if you go to China versus the U.S., how they view politics, entrepreneurism, all that stuff, they, they have these certain things and traits and uh, masks or whatever that, that they have in common. Does, does your theory, how, how does it account for that? Is that a DNA difference or is there something yeah. to the cultural difference as well? Well, I mean, that's, that's another great question. It's a very deep question. But uh, the first level of answer has to do with this thing that we're 99.9% all the same in terms of our DNA. And that's what makes us all humans. You know, we all, at the most basic level, everyone in the world, no matter what their culture, walks on two feet. They have frontal vision, you know, where we get depth perception. So there's so much that makes us human. You know, and a, a visitor from outer space might look at all of us and say, you know, you're all this, I can't tell any difference. You guys are so similar. You know, you're all within a certain height and, you know, so many things are similar physically. And I think also... Mentally, there's a lot of universality in the human species. But what you're pointing out is how we don't notice that when we go to um, some foreign country, we notice the differences. Mm -hmm. And it's a good mm -hmm. question. Yeah. To say, where do they come from? And most people assume, like um, anthropology for a long time, cultural anthropology, just assume all of this is cultural. You know, it's all environmental, you know. And it's reasonable, just like psychologists assume all differences within a culture are environmental, you know, like schizophrenia is caused by what your mother did to you in early in life. It's not crazy to think that. But what genetics is saying is that genetics is so much more powerful than anybody thought, and you ignore it at your peril. So when you look at differences between cultures, you, it's worthwhile thinking about to what extent there might be a genetic difference accounting for some of these things or influencing it to some extent, you know? Yeah. But it's very hard to determine scientifically the cause of differences between groups, like between different cultures. Yeah. You know, even when you have DNA, it's hard because DNA differs between cultures. And so it's hard to pin down the extent to which the DNA differences are actually causing the differences between cultures. But what genetics is very powerful at doing is understanding causes of differences within cultures. So most of the genetic research is done in Europe and America. And so what we're talking about is the genetics of primarily um, Northern European 
uh, people. And there's actually a big movement on now to try and study genetics in other uh, uh, cultures. Like there are very few studies in Africa, for example. China now is making, is putting a huge effort on collecting DNA from people because everyone, you know, from a medical point of view, the idea of being able to predict heart attacks, for example, or other illnesses Mm -hmm. is so powerful because if you can predict, you can prevent rather than waiting till people have heart attacks and then trying to fix them, which we're not very good at in a way, you know, the quality of life is definitely worse. So if you can predict, you can prevent and DNA is the best early warning system we have. And, but most of this work is really primarily relevant to people of uh, Northern European ancestry, because those are just, that's where the studies were done. And what we know is different, different ancestral groups differ genetically. And we know that our ability to predict heart attacks or schizophrenia or anything else um, is not nearly as good in other ancestral groups. The farther you get away in ancestry, the less well we can use the DNA revolution. So it's a great point that you raise, and it's, um, it's a really hot topic now. Okay, so I'm going to give you four groups of people. Um, and, and maybe try to help me understand how you would view these and why DNA explains all four. Some would be quite obvious. The other two, from my perspective, are harder to understand. Um, so elite athletes, they're tall, they're big, they're fast, right? Really, really smart people, academics, you know, just the great thinkers, okay? You mentioned schizophrenics. I'm curious about that. And then alcoholics. So four classes of people, uh, people who are substance, prone to substance abuse, people who have schizophrenia, um, world-class athletes and world-class thinkers. All four, are all four of these as simple as saying just genetics? And if so, is there hope for people? I mean, if you're going to be tall, you're going to be tall. I get that. But is there hope for the alcoholic? Because you can't prevent being tall. I mean, I guess extreme measures. Yeah, but you yeah. can't prevent being tall. Um, so can you prevent being an alcoholic? Yeah, well, exactly right. That's the bang on question, you know? I mean, some people think if something's genetic, it's immutable. You know, that you, you, you can't do anything about it. It's hardwired, but it's not. Because we're, um, most people know about genetics from Mendel. Do you know Mendel worked with the pea plants and he, in 1850s, showed how heredity works. But he was dealing with single gene mutations in pea plants. So if you were a pea plant and you had a particular mutation, all of your seeds would be wrinkled instead of nice and smooth. There's nothing you can do about it. It's hardwired. That's a single gene trait. There are thousands of single gene disorders in humans, um, like Huntington's disease. A friend of mine was just found out his parent had Huntington's disease, and that means he has a 50% chance of having that mutation and dying before he's 60 from neural degeneration that takes place over 15 years or something like that. It's horrible. Um, but those single gene disorders, so he, if he has the mutation, he will die from it. It doesn't matter what he does for nutrition or exercise. It is hardwired. The thing is, that's how people learn about genetics. And so they think anything that's heritable is like that, but it's not. All of these things we've been talking about, like heart disease or schizophrenia, they're due to thousands of tiny DNA differences. 
We know that now through DNA studies. They're not due to one or 10 or 100, thousands. And what that means is it goes from being deterministic to being probabilistic. And that's a big jump for people to make. But it's critically important because it relates to your bottom line there is, does it mean there's nothing you can do about it? Well, if it's a single gene disorder, there's nothing you can do about it. But these are not single gene disorders. They're probabilistic. They're quantitative. So we all have thousands of DNA risk factors for schizophrenia. The question is, how many have you got? And that's what most of the research in the last 10 years has been about, what we call polygenic scores, where you put together thousands of tiny DNA differences that predict something like schizophrenia or alcoholism or uh, a big deal in sports because there's so much money in it is athletic ability. You know, these these guys are coming to you saying, you know, you can give us a gene that predicts 0.1% of the variance. All you need is the tiniest edge. The guys with racehorses, God, are they into this? Because the tiniest little difference can really make a difference in the long run. So um, so I I do want to emphasize the, I know I've mentioned, I'm babbling on here a bit, but there's so much, you know, you're kind of in the middle of things to try and discuss all this. But uh, uh, the one point I want to emphasize here is that everything is heritable now. I mean, we've gone from the 1970s where people weren't willing to think anything's heritable to the point now where everything's heritable. The challenge is to find anything in psychology that is not significantly heritable. So everything's heritable, but does that mean there's nothing you can do about it? And absolutely not. So if we can use DNA to predict alcoholism and you f- say you just, your son takes a, a DNA test and finds out they're at risk for alcoholism, that just means they're at more risk than other people. It doesn't mean he's determined, it's determined that he will become alcoholic. And so then you say, well, what good is that? And that it's the point, though. If you knew you were at risk for alcoholism or your son was, you might say, doesn't mean you're going to be alcoholic. It just means you're at a slightly greater risk than your buddies. So if in adolescence, when you go out and get bombed, you're, you're increasing your likelihood that you're going to become dependent on it. And so why not just be sensible? What we're all supposed to do, monitor your alcohol use, take holidays from alcohol every now and then. And, and then there are, of course, higher tech things you can do you know, pharmacological things that make it very difficult for you to drink alcohol, but you don't even have to go there. See, I think that's what the DNA revolution is about. Like I've, one of the most predictive things that you can predict height extremely well, you know, from DNA, but weight, people are surprised that you can predict quite a bit about weight. It's by far the best predictor we have of whether you're going to be obese or overweight. And my highest polygenic score, that is this DNA score combined that combines thousands of DNA differences, my highest polygenic risk score is for body weight, obesity. Now, I don't know if you can see, but I'm, I'm not exactly thin, but I definitely, I mean, I'm at the 70th percentile of weight, but I'm at the 94th percentile genetically. And the point is... So you... People say, oh, well, then you're just going to give up and say, I'm a genetic fatty. I can't do anything about it. But to the contrary, I find it motivates people. It definitely motivates me. I realize I've got a battle of the bulge. This isn't just like a few pounds you put on over holiday or something. This is a lifelong battle. 
So what I do is I, re- you know, I change my environment. I just can't have junk food in the house because, you know, late at night, you're tired or whatever. I'm going to have one, one potato chip and before you know it, the whole bag's gone. You know, that sort of thing. It's right. easy for me to put on weight and it's harder for me to lose weight. And thin people don't understand it. You know, you talk to a public audience, you know, general audience, and well, just, you know, as they say in England, pull your socks up, you know, get a grip, get control. And it's true. If I didn't eat so much, I wouldn't get fat. But that's easy to say, you know, especially if you're thin. So I find it very motivating. And and but the main point is, if something's genetic, it doesn't mean you can't change it. It doesn't mean it's you're determined to become fat or alcoholic. But it it means you're more likely to. So if we took the phrase nature versus nurture, um, so kind of DNA versus your environment. If I'm hearing you correctly, if we have the DNA, then we know how to nurture people. Would that be a correct assessment for some things? Obviously, single cell things, as you mentioned, you can't do. But for these um, schizophrenia, alcoholism that have a bunch of traits, if we know that there's a high propensity, that we know how to nurture them better. Would that be a good assessment of what you're saying? Well, I just modified a little bit to say that if we know something's genetic, we at least have a handle on how we're going to... personalized treatment. That is, it. we don't really know much about these environmental treatments because we look at, um, say, drugs that we administer to people for medicine. We do it on average for people. And what the genetics suggests mm. is we need to personalize it, individualize it, tailor it to an individual on the basis of their genetics. For example, one of the big areas of research is depression, you know, which is a huge topic around the world. And um, there are different therapies like talking therapies, cognitive behavior therapy, and then there are drug therapies. And it's, it's almost certain that some people genetically will profit from one more than the other. And what's more, it may be that some people genetically may actually suffer from these treatments. Like some people who are depressed, if you give them antidepressants, it might be very bad for them. And so that's what people are trying to do is to figure, we call it gene by therapy interaction, that the different strokes for different folks. Sure. Well, the, the thing about depression that caught my attention there is we had on um, Dr. Joanna Moncrief, and she's arguing that serotonin levels aren't related to uh, depression. Is your take that, do you, I don't know if you have a, a stance on that, but what is your take on, is, is it just strictly genetics? Do you have a take on what causes depression? Yeah, well, that's what people are trying to find out. And they thought when we find the genes for depression, there'd be like two or three genes. And almost certainly one of them would have to do with serotonin transport and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But what we've learned is all those neurological stories are fairy tales because there are thousands of genes that contribute to your risk for, for depression. So there isn't going to be any simple pathway. So you know, I never, I never really believed the stories. Well, this is serotonin. Maybe serotonin's involved, but that doesn't mean it's causal. You know, it could be that I bet most parts of your brain are involved because if there are thousands right. of genes, these genes don't work in simple pathways that make it easy for neuroscientists to figure out, you know, A to B to C sort of things. So um, I, I wasn't too surprised by this finding that. Um, the for a long time, you know, people thought, well, 
this is just a done and dusted story, you know, the serotonin business. But now that people are looking into it more carefully, it looks like it isn't just such a simple story. You mentioned a minute ago the example that we probably all learned in school, which was the pea plants and how you can crossbreed them. And uh, that's kind of how you learn about genetics or DNA when I was growing up, at least. Um, and you've talked, you've touched on the DNA revolution in the 90s. Um, two things. One, how much of current thinking is based upon what at the time was good science or all that they knew? but it has ingrained the scientific community or the general public's mindset uh, and needs to be reshifted and then take that to where we are today. And how much do we actually know versus how much are we still in the infancy of learning about all these things? Hmm. Yeah. Another good question. Um, when I talked to public groups, well, I wrote my book because I wanted to give people the DNA literacy, to, to be able to talk intelligently about these topics, because this is really happening now, the DNA revolution, you know, in many countries, not so much in the U.S. yet, but say in uh, England and uh, Europe, Estonia, Finland, um, when you go into a hospital, they when they take your blood, they'll offer to do this DNA testing for you and use it as part of the medical practice, you know, just to say, look, you're at a tenfold greater risk of having a heart attack by the time you're 40, you know? So it really is happening now. And um, when I talk to public audiences about it, everyone sort of knows about heredity. You know, there was Uncle Joe who, you know, had a, was very depressed and that sort of thing. At, at a physical level, people get it. You know, um, families who are tall are likely to have pe kids who are tall People know eye color, hair color, tends to be inherited. But when you scratch the surface of what they know about the mechanisms involved, like DNA itself, people don't really know very much. And I think to a large extent, they're still stuck in what you're talking about. You learn how about how you learn about genetics. You know, if it's genetic, that means it's determined and it's immutable. You just can't do anything about it. And we even find that you write a paper in, about genetics in an, and it goes into a newspaper. And, you know, the guys who do the story are different from the guys who write the, the, the title of the story. And, you know, the guy who writes the story, you get him on board, everything's great. And you say, just make sure you don't imply that this is like one gene and it's determined. So you tell the story about something like reading disability or schizophrenia. Sure enough, that headline comes out the gene for reading disability, you know? So I think um, there's a long way to go in helping people to understand the complexity of this, but also appreciating the power of it. Well, I mean, hearing you talk has been eye-opening for the, the simpleton like me who doesn't understand these things going, okay, so what is it like? I think cystic fibrosis is one of these single trait diseases, right? Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, you think, you think of, you hear about that in school and then you think about male pattern baldness, maybe, or you think about, and then you go alcoholism and then you think, Oh, schizophrenia is tied to this. And so all of a sudden, you know, tall people are all tall. And so you, you kind of just lump all this in together because that's kind of how you've been raised. And so to take a deep breath and go, okay, Hmm. Some of these things are, percentage-based, and some of these things are just, that's the way it's going to be, is liberating in a sense, because it does mean that you can investigate if you are more prone to you know weight gain or 
heart disease or, or whatever, and it's and it's a percentage thing, then you have the ability to at least mitigate your risk. Um, mm-hmm. And it also means that you can warn your children at a younger age. And so you talk about this nature, nurture, or however you want to phrase this. Hey, kids, our family is prone to this. Um, and so I, I do think you're, you're right that people like me, we, we don't, because so much of it has just been not, I'm not saying intentionally, just been digested as it's all a flat level. Um, and we haven't stopped to think about the implications of this. And then something like schizophrenia, just to go back to that, which is fascinating. It's so rare that people like me don't engage with schizophrenics. You know, we don't, we don't talk to people like that because they're not in our community. And so it's even, that's even a foreign thing. So if you're like, oh my gosh, if that's genetics, I don't want to think about that because that's really scary. And so there's probably a lot of different motivations and, um, and fears tied up with this conversation too. Yeah. But you know where it really comes down to earth is when people have kids. So, you know, if you look there, there are literally 10,000 books have been published on parenting. I don't know if you're a parent, but, you know, if you are. Oh, yeah. Well, when people have their first parent, a kid especially, they go out and they, they look at these books and it's a, a bewildering. You know, they're very authoritarian about what you ought to do. Do this. Don't do that. But really, they don't know very much, really. And what bothers me the most is try and find one of those books that mentions genetics. They don't. Whereas I think the single most important thing parents need to know about child rearing is genetics. Because if they think they have, they're in charge of the way their kids turn out, they're in for a world of hurt. If they think the kid's a blob of clay that they're going to make into what they want them to be, you know, like you mentioned, an athlete, for example, or a scholar or a musician, if they have these preordained notions, they're really, it's, they're setting themselves and their kids up for a lot of problems. I think what parents need to do is recognize that the single biggest factor in how their kids turn out is genetics. And that instead of trying, and that I can explain it, I haven't really gone into it, but a lot of the environmental differences we don't have control over. They're not the sort of thing Freud talked about, like the mother and uh, causing schizophrenia. We call the nurture mm. kind of implies if you're an authoritarian parent, you provide that environment to all four of your kids. But what we know is the way the environment works, whatever it is, it makes kids in the same family different from one another. Genetics makes them similar 50 percent and different 50%. First-degree relatives are 50% similar genetically. But the environment makes them different, not similar, which is a, I know it's a hard concept to take in mind, but the point for parents is genetics is the most important systematic uh, predictor of kids' outcomes. And the environment isn't something that parents have much control over. Most of it is chance. So... Um, that that's a long story in itself, but I do think it's such an important message for parents that they realize that um, they're not really making their kids. They don't have a lot of control over how their kids turn out other than the genes they provided. And what that means to me along the lines that we've just been talking about is that um, parents need to recognize kids are different. And if you have more than one kid, you see how different they are. And then to respect those differences to a greater extent. And I think to find out what your kid likes to do 
and what they're good at, to give them the opportunities to find out what they like to do and what they're good at, rather than your preordained notions of it, and then to help them do it. And you do that not because you're trying to make them be what you want them to be, but because you love them. You want life to be nice for them. You want them to be happy. So it's a different way of thinking about parenting, but I'm sure it's um, better for kids and parents in the long run that they realize it's a relationship. You know, like with your, your spouse, you don't do things for them because you're trying to make them be something you want them to be. You do nice things for them because you love them. You want life to be nice for them. You enjoy them. And I think the biggest enjoyment of parenthood is watching your kids become who they want to become, not uh, becoming what you want them to become. And most of that has to do with recognizing genetic differences. One more thing about it. I'm sorry I'm babbling on here so much, but you're asking two questions that are too good. <laughs> and the, it, in psychology, it's, there's a phrase that's been attributed to about a dozen different people over about 30 years, but it's that parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child. So with the first <laughs> child, it's really easy to say, uh, here's a good test of it too. If the kid is shy, for example, you ask the parent, why do you think the child's shy? And they give you one of two answers. One is, I took her out too much when she's young. The other is, I didn't take her out enough when she was young. And that points out the problem with retrospective environmental explanations. You can explain anything, but as a result, you're explaining nothing. But then you have a second child, and because shyness is actually one of the most heritable personality characteristics in infancy, in, in childhood. And so if it is genetic, your second child will be 50% different, 50% similar, but 50% different from the first child. So chances are, if the first one was very shy, the second one won't be as shy. And when you see those differences from early on in life, you say, I didn't do that. And so you no longer think it's all environmental. You, think, you say, well, there must be something there going on genetically. So I think it's a good phrase. Parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child. Did you experience that yourself with well, your four I'm kids? Well, I'm thinking, uh, yes. And also I have a friend and he's, you know, I'm loud, bombastic, and he's more quiet than me. And he's got five kids, but two of them are really quiet like he is. And the other two, the other three um, aren't. And so you kind of have that 50% on the margin difference in his kids. It's like, and, you know, they, they're all kind of in the same house. You're like, why, why is this one? Um, less like he is than the other one. And, you know, they're boys and girls. And so there's no correlation there. It's this, it's weird. It's just so to hear you say that, but to me, um, to my kids, you know, the, the thing that sticks out is, so I have one boy who's the oldest, he's about to be 15 and I've got three girls. So my youngest is three. Um, and yeah, they're all, they're all different. They all respond to things differently. Um, but, but they do. And this is what's interesting. I'm curious your thoughts on. So, my oldest daughter is 12 um, and is I've, I've said for years, she is the best sister I've ever seen. She loves her siblings and is great to them. And so all of the siblings beneath her, the two beneath her are, are really great siblings as well. Um, and they have kind of a love and camaraderie that that's really unique. And so I'm curious, would you say that that is just their genetic propensity or is there something about having a very loving big sister that's helped the younger two be very soft and loving as well? Well, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. It's, it's hard, you know, we can study individuals. It's harder to study, we call them dyads or triads, you know, 
Yeah. It's like the behavior of a group. And I agree, you know, groups have their own characteristics, don't they? You know, and yeah. you're very lucky to have uh, kids who, you know, get along so well because, you know, my, my sons often said, well, I, I uh, can choose my friends, but I can't choose my sibling. <laughs> and you know, sometimes siblings just rub each other up the wrong way. In fact, I, oh, yeah. my, uh, my current wife, uh, we, she's a developmental psychologist, and we got together actually because we were at a conference talking about why are siblings so different in a family. And she was an environmentalist and looked at family processes and that sort of thing. Then she had these fraternal twins, and these boys are... You know, they're not identical twins, but they're as different as any two people on earth. I mean, you know, one is into sports. The other hates sports. One is academically oriented. The other never likes school. You know, and these are kids growing up in the same family. And as a result, you could imagine they weren't best of buddies. <laughs> you know, they had completely different right. friends. Well, and all clear, my, yeah. Right. Our, ours are definitely all different. I can name differences. Um, but there is this, starting with my 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 oldest daughter into the younger two. There's just this, this sweetness about it. I mean, it could just be a girl boy thing. Uh, not to say my son. Could be good parents, though. So I'd, I'd be willing to credit that to good parenting. <laughs> well, no, I, mean, I think you set a tone. Then, then it's genetics. You know, I mean, if it's you know, if, if you're loving towards your wife and you know you value that sort of thing, I, you know, I don't. I think you can make a difference, just like with your employees or whatever. You know. Um, I think the boss does make a difference in the sense of setting a tone and saying, you know, I, I respect the dignity of people. I, I want people working with me to be happy. And, you know, I think it does, um, uh, setting a tone does make a difference. And I'd be willing to bet that that, it may have to do with the genetic constellation. Like if your kids were as different as my wife's two boys, it, it'd be a, a push. I mean, you could demand that they're nice to each other, but I mean, it'd be a push for them to really like each other because they're just so different from each so other. Different. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. Let's take periods of time in the future. 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. What do you expect the trajectory of these studies to be in those time periods? Yeah. Well, uh, we just touched on the DNA revolution, but that is what's going to change everything. It's already starting to change medicine a lot where medicine's moving towards prediction and prevention rather than waiting till people develop disorders and then trying to cure them, which we're not all that good at. So it's already starting to happen. In China, they're already, we call it sequencing, all 3 billion base pairs of DNA for 50% of the 10 million babies born every year. Now, you kind of worry about what China might be doing with this information, but ostensibly it's for medical reasons and prediction. But I think um, already now, um, do you know there are these companies called direct-to-consumer companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and 27 million people have paid to have their DNA testing done because, you know, they want to know that single gene disorders are very rare. We haven't emphasized that enough, but they're very rare, but very dramatic. You know, if they happen to you, like my friend who just realized he's at 50% risk for having Huntington's disease. So those are rare. You know, but, you, you, real, real quick, you, you mentioned the Huntington, Huntington's disease. I don't know if it's the same one, but it sounds quite similar. We have, um, my parents have a friend um, and they have something that sounds extremely similar to that. And she, she got it. And, you know, you've seen a 
vast deterioration. It is quite tragic. So yes, it's, <laughs> I didn't mean to skip over that and make light of it. Cause when you said that, I was like, Ooh, that sounds yeah. like what she's got. And it's, it's, uh, See, that's, that's one in 10,000, that's one in 10,000 people of Northern European ancestry. So, and that's actually more common than many of them. Some of these single gene disorders are, well, they're one in a million, you know, so these are very rare. The common sorts of things that really create the medical problems in our society, obesity, hypertension, uh, these are a mental illness. These are uh, substantially influenced genetically, but the genetics isn't single genes. It's thousands of tiny DNA differences. And in a way, that means there is no disorder. There's just a, a normal distribution, a quantitative distribution. We all have a lot of genetic risk factors for schizophrenia, but some people have, you know, they're at the very end of the dimension. And so they're at greater genetic risk. So if you take people who are diagnosed as schizophrenic, um, they'll have these polygenic, they'll have much higher polygenic scores than the rest of the population. But again, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to become schizophrenic. It's still probabilistic. And, well, okay. there's just so much more to say about all these things, but I do try to touch on them in my book. <laughs> yes, and uh, we, we're going to be sure to link to your book, of course, uh, in the show notes for people to go check it out. Um, so let's kind of bring this full circle, if you will. You mentioned early on Nazi Germany. We touched on the the idea that perhaps um, slave owners have used this mentality. It's one thing to say in the 1930s, 1940s, the Nazis were doing it, or perhaps slaveholders from ancient history were doing it. It's far more scarier to think, though, that world governments can take this information and use it. Um, you mentioned China. Um, you think about uh, authoritarian regimes who could take this data and use it for very terrible reasons. And I'm not suggesting that China will, but um, what responsibility does the general public have to be aware of this topic? And how do we discuss this with the political leaders to prevent atrocities from happening? Yeah. Um, I think people are less worried about atrocities than they are about the just general misuse. Like you could worry about insurance companies finding out that you have a high genetic risk for cardiovascular disease. If you were the insurance company, would you want to insure you? You'd say no, but that's illegal in the United States now. You know, you can make some of these things explicitly illegal, but with big data, you still have to worry about it. You have to worry about data breaches. So there's a lot of people worrying about a lot of this stuff. But the reason I wrote my book is because I'm a cheerleader for this. It's, it's just so clear to me that it's very valuable. And, and most powerful new scientific advances have potential for bad as well as good. And we have to do the best we can to minimize the risks of people misusing data, but not to the point where we ignore the tremendous value that can come from this medically and also socially, I think. So I think the future will mean that people will generally be getting this information about DNA on themselves, on their children very early in life, because to pre to prevent things from happening, to intervene requires intervening early. Generally, in early interventions work better. And so I, I really think it's going to happen. And I want people to be 
to have the literacy to be able to talk about this stuff intelligently and just get away from the knee-jerk reaction that we had in psychology for a century. Environment good, genetics bad. But, you know, it isn't like that. Genetics is good, too. Okay. Uh, as we mentioned, we're going to link to the book in the show notes. Obviously, uh, we'll probably just link to your entire Amazon uh, book page for people to find all of your work. Where else would you like us to send people to? Well, I've done a bunch of podcasts, but I think if they listen to yours, they'll be in good shape. <laughs> okay. A website or anything, anything like that? Um, you can get all that, but um, no, I, I, I think I just really encourage people to read the book. I've written... Um, <laughs> about 800 articles so and 12 books so people are welcome to it's easy to find that you just google robert plowman and you get all my cv and that information but uh, most of that's very scientific and this is my first attempt to write something for the public because i think these are such important issues okay well thank you so much for your time today thank you for for breaking this down for the for the average person because it is a fascinating topic and uh i learned quite yeah. a lot well, you're too modest. These weren't, these were very great questions. I mean, I think they were the perfect questions to ask. So I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. There it is. My conversation with Dr. Robert Plowman. Hope you enjoyed that. Warroommedia.com. If you're listening at this point, you might as well subscribe to the newsletter. Why not? It's free. You can't support the show there. You don't have to, but that's where you get everything. Warroommedia.com. We'll talk to you tomorrow.